0: Good morning. I'm Robin Shannon. This week on Fordham Conversations, we take a literary trip through the gritty streets of the South Bronx with Fordham professor Dr. Mark Nason and his new book, Pure Bronx. It's the story about a young couple and the means they use to try and escape the poverty, desperation and frustration that can sometimes come with living in New York City's poorest borough. There's also a cast of characters that provides an opportunity for the reader to see the South Bronx through a variety of different ethnic points of view. But before we get into the interview, here's Dr. Nason reading from his latest book, Pure Bronx.
1: Khalil turned back to his two younger brothers. He had left them on the other side of the schoolyard near the old elementary school that had served Patterson projects for more than 50 years. Even though they looked on with awe and respect, Khalil sighed. He had never wanted them to see this side of him, but what could he do? If he had given the Mexicans a pass, even for an hour, it would be a sign of weakness. He would be the one lying in the ground. Rose took a couple of steps towards Khalil and whispered, Khalil, i done known you since you was knee-high to a grasshopper. I took care of you when your mama was still working, and i done watched you. It broke my heart to see the streets get you, but they don't have to be you. You play the game good, so good that I might be the only one who know that your heart ain't stone. You got a conscience, and that gonna get you killed before long. Get out of the game, for it claims you. You listen to old Rose. You hear me now? Rose looked at him so deeply, it caused him to turn away from her stare. She was right, and he knew it. I'm getting out. I just haven't figured out how yet, Khalil said. He started walking toward his brothers, 10-year-old Sean and Kenyatta, who was 8. The two boys stood shivering in the west side of the schoolyard near Morris Avenue. Khalil felt a sharp pain in his stomach, and a pounding sensation ran loudly in his head. It wasn't that he was worried about getting arrested. The police never entered PS18 Playground. It had been the drug marketplace for Patterson projects since the days of Guy Fisher, a drug lord who rose from Patterson to own the Apollo Theater. Then the feds took him down and threw him into a life vid. Khalil was concerned about Kenyatta and Kishon. He knew that as soon as they lived in Patterson, nothing could stop them from becoming drug-dealing thugs like he was. There was no innocence here. By the time a person was Kenyatta's age, you had already seen shootings and beatings. You already would know how to duck when gunshots were fired. And adults in every stage of rage, nakedness, and addiction wouldn't be anything new. By middle school, where Kayshawn would be next year, one had to join a gang or a crew. That was the alternative to being robbed and beaten every day for the foreseeable future. It didn't matter how well one did in school. The hood had first dibs and would claim you.
0: Good morning, Dr. Nason.
1: Great to be here as always.
0: (laughs) So can you describe the book Pure Bronx? What made you write it?
1: I was teaching a graduate course uh, with a young German scholar called Hip Hop Street Lit Narratives. This was four years ago. It was uh, focusing on this whole new form of literature that had come out in the last 15 years, largely written by people who were in prison and by people who had recently come out of prison And these books were being sold out of cars, out of stands and, you know, Fulton Street and Fordham Road and 125th Street. And we read some of these sort of signature works in the field. And I said, half as a joke, why don't we try writing our own novel? And the class looked at me and said, oh, no, another one of Nason's schemes. So I said, Okay, I'm going to write three pages So I did so in the voice of this drug dealer with a heart of gold, Khalil, and there's this brilliant creative writing master student in the class, Melissa Castillo Garso, and she decides to write back in the voice of a female character, Rashida. And we started going back and forth, and when we had 100 pages, we showed it to somebody and said, damn, this can get published. So it's a book written by a professor and a student modeled on a new form of literature that almost never gets looked at in academia. This is one of the first courses ever taught that looks at street literature or urban fiction as an important social phenomenon.
0: I want to get back to talking about your book in a minute, but I want to talk a little bit about urban literature, informally known as Street Lit. You use that when writing Pure Bronx, but Street Lit is also been criticized for being racially stereotypical, repetitive, and vulgar, because if it was a movie, it would be sort of X-rated. So why did you use Street Lit when writing Pure Bronx? Um, And what do you think of the criticism?
1: I think that the books are widely varied in content, and the best of them do not fit that stereotype. Some of them do. There is a lot of ethnic stereotyping of neighborhoods which are much more diverse, and we specifically decided we were going to include the full variety of people in Bronx neighborhoods, not just African-Americans or or Puerto Ricans, who are the two groups that most appear in it.
0: Because there were Africans from Africa People from Africa, Africa from
1: Mexico, Mm -hmm. from Honduras, Garofana. So we said, we're going to respond to the criticism by doing something which shows the full ethnic diversity of the borough, and we're going to try not to be repetitive. So, but there are some great books that have been written in street literature, and look, now they're in every Barnes and Noble and and every Borders, as well as being sold on the street. So, look, you have, there are thousands of these volumes now. And some of them, you know, are not very well written, and some of them are fascinating. So, now, isn't that
0: part of Street Lit that, as the reader, you sort of have to be forgiving about the editing and about the uh, grammar? Because these are pretty much not professionally published right. they're books. they're
1: self-published or published by people who wrote the books themselves, And here's the irony, there may be more novelists in prison now than in universities, which says something about our whole incarceration policies. There are all these talented people in jail who have found an outlet to express themselves in this. And also a way of making a living when they get out, because if you read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, a lot of these folks, if you've been to jail, you're barred, for, basically can't get a job, even at a McDonald's, a Burger King, a Walmart's, or Kmart. So if you can make money as a writer, it's a wonderful way of circumventing some of these restrictions. And, you know, and if you can become a publisher, it's even better. So I it to me, this is an inspirational form of expression written by people who have been marginalized and pushed aside, and now they force themselves into our consciousness through their books. We don't necessarily like them. The books are harsh, you know, and we decided to stay within the genre. There's going to be violence, there's going to be sex, there's going to be drugs, there's gonna be prison. But within that framework, you can be very creative too. And that's what we hope we've been.
0: Now, how difficult was it for you to write in this urban lit form? Or did you find it sort of flowed after a while?
1: Okay, look, remember, I study hip hop. So I'm not gonna quote you all the lyrics from Biggie <laughs> or Nas. what you
0: quote in your book, Your Bronx? There's a oh, lot, yeah, of, a lot of lyrics Joe. from- Oh yeah, or
1: Joe. So I'm used to gritty, earthy forms of expression. And I'm a pretty gritty, earthy person myself. I mean, I grew up in the streets of Brooklyn and we didn't use very clean language in the 50s and 60s. So this, you know, look, I had to learn how to be an academic who talked in a proper standard English fashion. I didn't grow up speaking that way. This is all something I learned. So this is for me going back to my childhood and also reconnecting with sort of hip hop language. So. <laughs> It wasn't hard for me to write this way at all.
0: It's very familiar to you. Yeah,
1: plus, I, it's an opportunity to use my sense of humor in the dialogue, which we, we try to put a little humor into the book as well.
0: Now, Dr. Nason, um, speaking of gritty, throughout the book you sort of liberally sprinkle the N-word. Um, now, you were born Jewish, uh-huh. and have you received any backlash from anyone who says, you know, wait a minute, a white person isn't supposed to use the N-word?
1: Well, the characters aren't white, and I have not gotten any criticism for the characters using that language. I'm not using it. The characters are. So the question is, is this how the characters actually speak? And my answer is, if you think they don't speak that way, you haven't been in the Bronx. You know. And remember, I have also 20 years of coaching experience in baseball and basketball with inner-city kids. So I'm pretty familiar with the language. In fact, I've been called the N-word myself. Somebody once said when he played basketball against me 15 years ago, that N is dirty and mad strong.
0: That's how they describe (laughs) you.
1: Yeah. So, you know, this is not, I mean, I never use the word in my own conversation, but when I'm trying to recapitulate how people actually speak in the real world, yeah, I use it.
0: So you do think it's fine to use in artistic expression? Yeah,
1: yeah. I think it's fine to use because, of course, too. there's a debate about I'm, that. I going to Are you going to throw out Jay Z, Nas, Tupac, you know, yeah. and Missy Elliott because you don't like that word? You know, I.
0: That's the question.
1: Yeah, and if, if you th- you're going to throw out that, you're going to throw out some of the most important artistic expression of the last thirty years. Now,
0: who specifically? was your intended audience when you wrote Pure That's Bronx. a
1: great question. I'm not sure. We, we, I think we thought that probably the biggest audience was going to be kind of academics interested in street literature um, and also some authors who were interested in the idea that a couple of professors are writing the book. Whether people in the Bronx on you know are gonna pick it up on a stand and read it, that I'm very curious about. I'm not so sure. What would be pretty funny if it starts being taught in literature courses at like Fordham or Columbia <laughs> and not read on the street, which uh so there's this I don't think we necessarily thought that we were gonna get this huge audience of actual people in the hood, uh, but we were going to get people who were interested in the idea that a couple of professors were writing about that, and then may read other street-lit books after reading this. So is it a way to create dialogue? It's a way to create interest in the genre and not to write it off.
0: So you never considered using a pseudonym so that it might, so the book I, might be more receptive I to I the did, inner city? I the
1: publishers... I, threw away the pseudonyms. They wanted us under our real names. They even wanted PhD in the cover. Why? They want respectability. I mean, here, these are people, working class people, they didn't go to college, who have written and published all these books. And now they, they want, like the idea of recognition in the universities, that what they've done has legitimacy and value, which in fact it does. So I would call what we do the streetlit goes to college tour. Now here's another fascinating thing. There's a streetlit author named Jahad Uhuru who is very involved in the writing of this book. He's the person we sent it to when we written like a hundred pages. And he not only said yes it can be published, he helped us write certain portions of it and he got us an editor to help make it flow better. Jahad Uhuru has now written 12 books. Guess what I just wrote him a letter of recommendation for? For what? The Harvard Doctoral Program in African American Studies. He was in prison for eight years, became a publisher and author, went back to college, got a straight 4.0 average at Georgia State, and is applying to Berkeley and Harvard in African American Studies. As I said, he, he's going to have my job when I retire.
0: The inner city meets academia.
1: Yeah, so think about that, you know, which to me is what this is all about. It's making connections between people who normally don't connect with one another.
0: This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon talking with Fordham professor Dr. Mark Mason about his latest urban lit book, Pure Bronx. So getting into your book now, Pure Bronx, how would you describe the characters in the book? And let's start with Khalil. And Rashida.
1: Okay. They're two fairly typical, bright young people in the South Bronx who are in families which are in trouble. And they're the oldest, and they have to support and help out their younger siblings. And given the economy they're in, they can't very easily make the money to do that working legal or normal jobs. So Khalil sells drugs, and Rashida works in a strip club in order to pay for her tuition and support her family. And this, by the way, I think is very realistic. They're they're lovely people in some ways, though Khalil has a capacity to inflict violence if you get in his way.
0: So how did you come up with these characters?
1: Partly from people I know, and I'm not going to tell you how I know them, <laughs> uh, and partly from other, you know, from hip-hop. But also, Melissa actually had a roommate who was a stripper, so she knows that world. I The strip club scenes were not ones I could easily do, but the, the drug markets and the Patterson houses, all those places, I've been there. Remember, I did The Rat That Got Away with a former drug dealer, and I have worked at various times with young people who just got out of prison, who live in public housing and are trapped. And I know their desperation and I never could get them jobs. And they had to go back to selling drugs. Everything in this book is actually in the Bronx. Every place is a real Bronx place. From the housing projects, to the restaurants, to the schoolyards, to the body shops,
0: and that was part of my next question because you do mention real names of streets. There's a uh a, the Cheetah's Gentlemen Club. There's a real one and Rashida happens to dance at a Cheetah's Club in your book and there's a Gateway Mall where right. there is a real Gateway yeah, Mall there certainly and is. Then something happens, I don't want to give it away, where Khalil happens to have to get some money so to speak uh from someone at this mall. So why did you find it necessary and important to place your characters in the South Bronx as opposed to anywhere else?
1: Because we were very interested in showing a street literature with ethnic diversity. And you can't do the South Bronx without the ethnic diversity. So this was, we wanted all the immigrants to be in there because that's what's real there. And also the threat of gentrification coming from Harlem.
0: Because that's part of what motivates Khalil's friend whose father is possibly going to lose his business right. because we have these stores and, yeah. and big the, businesses the rents moving are go- in. In
1: the area, this particular area we focus on, which is the closest to Harlem, around Yankee Stadium, below the Cross Cronk Expressway, along Bruckner Boulevard, the rents are going up because there are new stores, there are new hip bars, there are artists moving in, there are young professionals moving in. And so as the rents go up, the the current residents and businesses may well be forced out the way they were from Harlem, from the Lower East Side, from my neighborhood Park Slope. So I'm very familiar with gentrification. So it hasn't happened in the scale it has in Harlem, but it's coming. And so we wanted to have that in the mix because it really is in the, it's on people's minds for sure. In those neighborhoods.
0: So there is some violence that happens to upper class New Yorkers. That's a nice way to say it without giving away too much. Is your book, Pure Bronx, meant to be a warning for them?
1: No. It's meant to say that poor people in New York are under immense pressure from the growing wealth that is coming in from all over the world into the island of Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn and are pushing working class and even middle class New Yorkers out. And am I shocked that there's gonna be some anger at this? No. Am I upset that there's gonna be anger? No. Look, de Blasio's election was a reaction against this. The people in the outer boroughs resenting the 1% dominating policy in New York City. And, there being, and everything catering to them. So this is a, a slightly more violent response, but that happens too.
0: Now I have to mention another character in your book, Pure Bronx. His name is Dr. Temple. He happens to be a white professor who's teaching a black studies course, like you. He has a Ph.D. and a very booming voice, like you do. And he's also a political activist, like you. So who inspired this This character?
1: is Jihad Uhuru said we should put a white black studies professor in the book. We hadn't initially intended to.
0: So you didn't plan on No, putting, not at all. Doctor. This
1: was Jihad's idea. And, there, and a lot of the writing was done by Melissa, who is partly basing some of the descriptions of Nelson Temple's office on my office. On the way I interact, he interacted with students on the way I do. But, you know, we take some liberties with the character. It's not exactly me. But Body like Hulk Hogan? Yeah. But it may be what some people imagine I am, <laughs> that I have the power to make you know bodies disappear, move people across borders, launder money, the et doctor cetera, does et cetera. So that
0: must have been sort of a boom for you.
1: It was a lot of fun. In fact, I may eventually write a series of Nelson Temple novels, you know, with him as the main character, you know, solving various problems of poor and working class people. So it was, but it wasn't my idea, but I, I think it's But hilarious. you wrote it. I Well, Melissa and I wrote it. Together. Together. Some of it is, you know, we shared the Nelson Temple section.
0: In the book, like you said, he's Part of this violent group called the People, Justice, Cadre? Yeah. Cadre, who actually end up being heroes. So why was it important to you to give this group such a valiant promise in
1: your book? Well, this is hilarious because this is like a 60s fantasy for all us 60s activists who watched a lot of things moving in disappointing directions in terms of economic inequality and war, you know, and the power of Wall Street. It's sort of like a fantasy. What if we had an organization that could right all the wrongs uh, by any means necessary? So it's like a 60s fantasy of what you could do to get back at these people.
0: Sort of the anti-hero.
1: Yeah, it's an anti-hero that ends up becoming the people's defender. Uh, Now, again, there are probably some people who suspect I have such an organization, since periodically I'm viewed as being a communist, a terrorist, a gang leader. So this will just contribute to the the image.
0: And I have to ask, as a reporter, do you want to confirm any of those accusations?
1: Well, actually, I, I always admit to everything. Think of me that way. Okay. I don't care. Uh, you know, my life is actually pretty much an open book since I actually wrote a book, White Boy, a memoir.
0: So can but you make no, people disappear? No, I, I am
1: not making bodies disappear at the moment. <laughs> at the moment. No. <laughs> Can't and promise I anything in the future. I haven't done this, you know, probably ever. But uh...
0: he says, probably, audience, he says, probably. <laughs> OK, we're going to leave that alone. I don't want to get you in any trouble. So okay. um, there are parts of the book where you say people call us gangsters because we steal cars. But the biggest gangsters in the world are the people who own banks and run governments. So why are the crimes that Khalil and Rashida commit? written in a way that makes them almost justifiable, while readers are almost inspired to cheer for the Bernie Madoff-type businessman who's in here, who Robert Seedman is yeah. his name, who's basically punished for his crimes. Why is one
1: crime justifiable and the other seen as a crime? It goes, Look at the Woody Guthrie songs, The Ballad of Pretty Boy Floyd from the 30s. In times when there's a concentration of great wealth, when people are being pushed out of the middle class and driven further into poverty, what people have to do to survive is seen as less damaging uh, than the things that people do impersonally that destroy thousands, if not millions, of livelihoods. As Woody Guthrie says, one of the lines is, as through this world I've traveled, I've seen some funny men. Some will rob you with a six-gun and some with a fountain pen. As through this life I've rambled, as through this life I've roamed, you'll never see an outlaw drive a family from their home. It was that way then, it's that way now.
0: Were there parts of the book that were a little bit more difficult to write than others?
1: The sex scenes were a little harder for me to write because I was a little embarrassed. I've never done that before. But I got used to it. Uh, <laughs> so the violence I could write about pretty easily uh, because I, you know, I love, like, The Wire. I love hard boiled urban detective fiction, you know, Dennis Lehane, like Mystic River, George Pelicanos. I've always loved those kind of books, and I always wanted to write them, but I didn't think I could write dialogue and I think realistically, if it wasn't for Melissa, who is very confident writing this way, I wouldn't have tried it. But having a fellow author who's a you know writes short stories and poems, she's a fiction person as well, a scholar. Then I said, okay, let me try writing this dialogue. And then when people said, well, it's not bad, I said, okay, I can do this. I always wanted to write like hard-boiled urban fiction. So.
0: So this is a genre you might stick with.
1: I think so. Well, one, we're going to probably write a Pure Bronx two, uh or maybe Pure Bronx The Remix mm-hmm. this summer. We already have a plot. And then I think we'll each go on our own and I'll write the Nelson Temple books. It'll be a nice way to spend my old age, you know, kind of writing these fantasies, but also dealing with real problems in the course of creating this fantasy world.
0: Professor Nason, what... If anything, do you want your readers to take away once they finish, once they put the book down and they're done? What do you hope they walk away with?
1: One, I think some sense of the vibrancy of the Bronx, all the ethnic diversity, the, these amazing immigrants coming from all over the world with ambitions and dreams clashing against the hard-boiled urban poverty that we have then I want people to understand that a lot of the people who are doing things that are illegal are doing this because their options are fairly limited. And that that world of money and power is very distant from them. Um, But it's coming towards them without giving them opportunities. I mean, people always say, don't you like the fact that gentrification brings in nice restaurants, you know, and stores with healthy food. And I said, yes, if the people living there could afford them, and if the rents didn't go up and then force them to move out. So I think that this great wealth has not trickled down in a way that's made the lives of the people in the Bronx better. It's more threatening to them than helping.
0: And and you were born in Brooklyn, but you seem to have a, a sort of a kinship for the Bronx. Why is that?
1: Because the Bronx now is much more like the Brooklyn I grew up in. You know, I grew up in a, it was a working class immigrant neighborhood where nobody had any money. You know, there weren't really poor people, but there were no people with money. It was, you know, everything was in the street. And now Brooklyn is like she-she. You know, my neighborhood, Park Slope, forget it. You know, it's like... Very upscale? It's very upscale, and I feel more comfortable in the Bronx than I do in my own neighborhood, Park Slope.
0: So why not move to the Bronx?
1: Well, my wife walks to work. She's a principal <laughs> of the local elementary school, and she's not going anywhere. <laughs> she's not going
0: so anywhere. So if she gets
1: rid of me, I would move to the Bronx.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I doubt she'll do that. I'm
1: too much entertainment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Professor Nason, You always have a lot of iron in the fire. What's next for you outside of book writing?
1: This organization I founded, the Badass Teachers Association, is now the fastest growing education activist organization in the country. We started in June. It has 36,000 members. What's its goal? Uh, its goal is to push the testing out of the, the the public schools and stop rating teachers on the basis of tests so that the arts and music and real joy can come back into learning because all the testing is just crushing teaching and learning so now i 've become a semi celebrity as the founder of the badass teachers you know isn 't that
0: sort of challenging though where Where would the money come from I mean it' would be great to have the arts uh, back in but where 's the money coming from
1: for The money will have to come by push. The tests are unbelievably expensive. People don't realize there are billions of dollars being spent on testing, on rating the tests, and you you push out half the tests. There's a lot of money freed up for things that students love. And then if I write Pure Bronx 2, there'll be more with that. So I've got enough to keep me going for quite a while.
0: And no vacations. In the mix.
1: <laughs> well, I, the thing is, I'm having, I have too much fun doing this. So even when I'm on vacation, I'm riding. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is at my age, I'm 67 years old. I'm supposed to be winding down, but I'm having more fun than I ever have.
0: You're gearing up a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a
1: good time. So,
0: Professor Nason, do you have advice for someone who's listening right now?
1: Uh, to uh, all the readers who think there's something I really want to do. I don't have the talent. I don't have the time. Do it. I always wanted to write a novel, but I didn't think I could do it, you know, because I didn't think I could write dialogue, and I had somebody help me, and sure enough, I did it. It got published, and now I know I could do it. So there, there may be all these dreams you've kept hidden. Keep them up. Bring them up. They might come true.
0: Thank you, Professor Nason.
1: My pleasure. I've seen lots of funny men. Some will rob you with a six gun and
0: some with a fountain pen. I'd like to thank Dr. Mark Nason. His and new book, Pure life Bronx, is out now from Augustus Publishing. Travel. I'd also like to thank my producer, Alan Canlick. Yes, this has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us, George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.